The readings this morning are from Acts chapter 28, um, 11 to 16 first, and then 23 to 31. After three months, we put out to sea in a ship that had wintered in the island. It was an Alexandrian ship with the figurehead of the twin gods, Castor and Pollux. We put in at Syracuse and stayed, stayed there three days. From there, we set sail and arrived at Regium. The next day, the south wind came up, and on the following day, we reached Puteoli. There we found some brothers and sisters who invited us to spend a week with them, and so we came to Rome. The brothers and sisters there had heard that we were coming, and they had traveled as far as the Forum of Appius and the Three Taverns to meet us. At the sight of these people, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. When we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. They arranged to meet Paul on a certain day and came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. He witnessed to them from morning till evening, explaining about the kingdom of God. And from the law of Moses and from the prophets, he tried to persuade them about Jesus. Some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. They disagreed among themselves and began to leave after Paul had made this final statement. The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your ancestors when he said through the prophet, through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will be ever hearing but never understanding. You will be ever seeing but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. For two whole years Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. This is the word of the Lord. Today is our last look at the book of Acts, at least for the moment anyway. We started in Acts chapter 1 right back in the first week of May, six months later, We've come, finally, to the end of the book. And we saw how Acts is a continuation of Luke's Gospel, um, written by the same author, as God's focus of activity moves from the life of Jesus into the life of the early church. But what was the common denominator between the life of Jesus and the life of the early church? Come on. What was the common denominator between... Thank you, Tracy, a bit louder? Holy Spirit, absolutely spot on. The Holy Spirit. And so we called the book of Acts the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And I don't know how good your memories are. We even went further than that because we called it the continuing acts of Jesus by the Holy Spirit in the lives of the believers. Does that ring a bell? Those of you who were here in the first week of May. <laughs> And so we began with Jesus' promise 
of the Holy Spirit in the first chapter of Acts and his ascension to heaven. We saw the Spirit poured out at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, the rapid growth of the early church in the following chapters as they lived their lives in the power of the Holy Spirit with extraordinary generosity, with miracles, with prophetic words, and at all times through prayer and being guided by the Holy Spirit. We learned of the enemy's attack on the fledgling church as first Ananias and Sapphira fall into temptation and literally drop dead, how persecution breaks out um, as the evident power of the Holy Spirit in the early church causes jealousy among the Jews, and how Stephen becomes the first Christian martyr, stoned to death for his alleged blasphemy. But this wave of persecution only serves to spread the gospel further and wider by scattering the believers all around the region. And so we saw Philip baptizing an Ethiopian who was on his way back to Africa. We saw Saul being converted on a Damascus road as he went to persecute the Christians in Syria. We saw Peter converting Cornelius on the coast in Joppa, the first Gentile to be converted in um, in, uh, in, in Israel, and the church in Antioch up in the north blossoms and grows and becomes a centre for the growth of the early church. And then for much of the rest of Acts, we followed Paul's missionary journeys all around the Mediterranean, starting churches in Cyprus, in Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derby, Galatia, Macedonia, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, Corinth, and Ephesus. And then on his return to Jerusalem, he's arrested. And to avoid uh, being kidnapped and killed by his own people, he appeals to Rome, his city of citizenship, and spends two years imprisoned on the coast of Israel, witnessing to the rich and powerful while he awaits transport to Rome, where he will be tried. And this is actually a map of his journey to Rome, that final journey, starting in the bottom right-hand corner in Judea, following the red line across the Mediterranean, eventually arriving back. He survives storms, he gets shipwrecked, and even survives a snake bite in Malta, which incidentally is my birthplace, in case you didn't know. And finally, he arrives in Rome, where we find him in our reading. So Paul, together with Luke, the the writer of, of Luke Acts, Uh, arrive in Rome where Paul is allowed to live under house arrest. In other words, in his own home but with a Roman guard. And he's allowed as many visitors as he likes. So what does Paul do? He does what he always does. He carries on, verse 23 tells us, explaining about the kingdom of God from the law and the prophets, in other words, from the Old Testament. He tells the Jews who are living in Rome about Jesus. There was quite a large Jewish population at that time. It was before the big persecution of Jews um, under, later under Nero um, in Rome. And he tells the Jews about Jesus. What was the response? Well, verse 24 tells us some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. Sound familiar? Wherever the gospel is preached, some are convinced and others do not believe. In our communities, in our families, in our nation, some are convinced and some do not believe. 
And in verses 26 and 27, Paul challenges those who do not accept his message, quoting the prophet Isaiah, who predicted the hardness of heart of many of the Jewish people toward the gospel. And as many of you know, Kirsty and I have just come back from a pilgrimage to Israel, which was amazing. It was fantastic. But I was struck by an incredible paradox. You see, we visited dozens of biblical sites. And here are some of them. So I'm going to slip in a few of my photos from the trip. Um, we, went to the, oh, we went to the well that Abraham dug in Beersheba, out in the desert. We walked the length of Hezekiah's underground water ch- tunnel, mentioned in 2 Chronicles 32. This was going down a deep passage into the, into the, the bowels of the earth before heading along the watercourse, which you have to do in pitch dark, it's a, and it's about more than half a mile long. It's, it's uh, interesting. Um, it was Nat's challenge to me to do that. Um, we went to the Temple Mount, the site of the great temple where, which Herod the Great built, but now occupied by the Muslim shrine, the Dome of the Rock, and the Al-Aqsa Mosque. We visited Nazareth, where Jesus grew up, and they had a, a, a rather fun recreation, a whole village recreated of first century life in Jesus' time. This was the, the carpenter's shop, perhaps something like it would have looked in Joseph's day and Jesus' day. We went to the Jordan, where the river, in the river were, that Jesus was baptised, and actually one of the party we were with was baptised um, one of the group we were in was baptised, which was really moving. It was a, a wonderful time. We walked in the wilderness. There's a bit of a selfie here. We walked in the wilderness where Jesus was tempted. You can see the barrenness of the land behind us. Jesus came up from his baptism out of the Jordan <coughs> into the local wilderness. And uh, this, is, this is just um, west of the, of the Jordan River. We stood in the synagogue where Jesus preached in Capernaum. Um, it's, it's an amazing place, right at the start of his, of his ministry. Um, the, the, the walls you see that are, that are there um, are actually a bit later, they're Byzantine, but the dark bricks at the very bottom of the, of the screen are from the original um, synagogue which Jesus t- um, uh, taught and preached in. We visited Cana, where he turned water into wine. We took a boat on the Sea of Galilee, and, uh, and it was lovely. We had a communion service on the boat. Um, where Jesus had calmed the storm and walked on the water. We prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus had spent that agonising last evening before his, um, his crucifixion. We went to the house of Caiaphas and to the uh, Pilate's palace, where Jesus had been tried and sentenced to death. And we went to the sites where Jesus is believed to have been crucified and buried. And we went to the shores of Galilee where Jesus appeared after his resurrection and reinstated Peter the Apostle. Galilee is a beautiful place. But you know, seeing all of these Old Testament and New Testament sites and walking where Jesus walked and praying where Jesus prayed and seeing where he died and rose again has been an amazing boost to my understanding of particularly my understanding of the Gospels, of Jesus' life, and a wonderful tonic to my faith as well. It's really inspiring to see these places. So I do strongly recommend, if you ever get the chance, 
go to the Holy Land, do a pilgrimage there. But I was struck by this extraordinary paradox. You see, literally millions of people every year visit Israel, mostly on Christian tours, to these places. And yet, the vast majority of the Jewish people who live in Jerusalem are hardened to the message. Mostly they don't accept Jesus as Messiah and Son of God, even though their country is visited, inundated by millions of visitors who do. It's a great paradox. However, there are 30,000, something like 30,000 it's estimated, Messianic Jews in Israel. In other words, Jews who have become believers in Jesus, but that's less than 1% of the population. Interestingly, there are over 150,000 Arab Christians, Palestinian Christians, five times as many. And we met a Palestinian pastor who had also planted, who had a church in the West Bank, the largest Palestinian area, but who had also planted a church in Gaza. I'm not sure I'd have the courage to do that because the second day we were there, the organization Islamic Jihad fired 450 rockets out of Gaza into Israel. Um, in re- as, as a retaliation for Israel's strike the day before, which killed one of their leaders. Thankfully, none of the rockets injured or killed anyone on the Israeli side of the border. But I really admire the boldness of this Palestinian pastor to go planting churches in Gaza. I'm not sure I would have the courage to do that. I think he shows some of the same courage that Paul the Apostle showed as he planted churches all the way around the Mediterranean and got beaten for it and almost stoned to death and shipwrecked and a whole number of other things for his trouble. The good news is that the number of Jews and Arabs in Israel becoming believers in Jesus is increasing. It's on the up. And so our role as Christians is to pray for all of the people of Israel to come to faith in Christ. That was Paul the Apostle's passion, to see, particularly to see the Jewish people come to faith in Jesus, and it should be ours as well. When Jesus returns, it will be to Jerusalem, it will be on the Mount of Olives where he ascended to heaven, so let's be praying that when he comes, it will be to a people who recognise him as Lord. So, here we are at the end of the book of Acts, and we find Paul in Rome, and then the story stops. We don't get any more information, except that in verse 30, we're told that Paul spent two whole years in his own rented house, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So here's a question. What happened to Paul after those two years? Well, it's interesting because tradition has it that Paul was executed in Rome. So one naturally assumes that the trial went against him. But there's strong evidence that actually there was a sequel, an unwritten sequel to the book of Acts. And the evidence suggests that Paul was acquitted at that first trial and then went on a missionary journey to Spain before returning to Rome where he was re-arrested and then subsequently executed under the persecution of Emperor Nero. And although the book of Acts doesn't tell us this... Let me take you on a very quick excursion into Paul's letter to the Romans. If you grab Paul's letter to the Romans and turn to page 1142, 
and I will also read it to you. One 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 four two. <coughs> We're looking at chapter fifteen, verses twenty three and twenty four. And of course, this was the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Rome. Um, before he actually arrived in Rome, some years before he arrived in Rome. But this is what he says, verse, uh, chapter 15, verse 23. But now, there is, now that there is no more place for me to work in these regions, and since I've been longing for many years to visit you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to see you while passing through, and that you will assist me on my journey there after I've enjoyed your company for a while." So, the first bit of evidence comes from Paul's letter to the Romans. We know that he intends to go to Spain after going to Rome. We know that that's his wish. Secondly, we know that the evidence against Paul in his impending trial was very weak. If you turn back to close to our pas- sorry, turn yes, back to close to our passage in Acts um, chapter 26 what you will find is that the evidence against him is very weak. In Acts 26, verse 31 and 32, this is describing Paul's trial prior to leaving Israel. It's kind of more like a hearing before King Agrippa and the Roman Festus. And it says this, Acts 26, 31. This man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. Agrippa says to Festus, This man could have been set free if he'd not appealed to Caesar. So we know that even those who were sending him on to Rome didn't believe that there was a real case to answer. There was very weak evidence. And now if you turn forward again to uh, back to our passage in Acts chapter 28, the last chapter, and you look at verse 21, here the local Jews say... We have not received any letters from Judea concerning you, in other words, Paul, and none of our people who've come from here has reported or said anything bad about you. In other words, none of Paul's accusers had turned up in Rome to offer any evidence. And finally, there's a really interesting piece of evidence outside the Bible in a writing by Clement of Rome, a Christian who wrote in about 90 AD about the Apostle Paul. And he says... After preaching both in the East and the West, the Apostle Paul gained the illustrious reputation due to his faith, having taught righteousness to the whole world and come to the extreme limit of the West and suffered martyrdom under the prefects. Now, to a Roman, the extreme limit of the West was Spain. That was as far West as you could go. And so it seems that Clement of Rome believed that Paul had travelled to Spain and preached the gospel there before returning to Rome, where he was re-arrested under the now growing persecution of Emperor Nero and died a martyr's death. We don't know it for certain, but it seems likely. And what that means is that Paul fulfilled his desire and his calling to preach the gospel to Spain and to the ends of the earth as he knew it, which is wonderful, isn't it? So there's a little extra biblical information for you to add to your knowledge of Paul. But, you know, to me, the challenge is clear. Having read our way through the spirit-filled pages of the Acts of the Holy Spirit, in awe and wonder at the extraordinary courage and boldness of those first witnesses, 
And having very recently walked where Jesus walked, prayed where he prayed, seen where he died on the cross and was buried and rose again, I'm challenged once again to more fully live out that calling on my life. I'm challenged not to be half-hearted. I'm challenged not to be someone who safely navigates their way through life without causing a fuss, but to make use of the precious time that I have to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit and to be a witness for Jesus. As you gathered, my dad died this week on Thursday morning, aged 95. And you know, he will have been glad to have gone home because he was a man of faith all his life. Life had got difficult for him. And he used to spend half an hour in his study every single morning of his life in silent prayer until he became too frail. He attended a Bible study group every week of his life until he couldn't get there anymore. He used to joke that they were the heretic society because they used to have such lively theological debates in in his home group. But his death is a reminder to me that our time on earth is precious. We all know people, whether in our families, in our friendship groups, our work colleagues, whose hearts have not been opened to the message of Jesus. And in just a very few short weeks, we will have some wonderful opportunities to invite those people at a time when it's much easier to invite them to church than at any other time, probably, in the whole year, to one of our Christmas events. Whether that's the carol service, the Chris Dingle, midnight, Christmas morning, where they can hear the good news of Jesus. I'm determined to invite my sister Jane and my son Tristan and his wife Steph and some other people who I know, none of whom believe or attend church. And do you know, whether they accept the invitation or not, that's not my responsibility. I'll pray like mad that they will, but that's God's work, isn't it? I simply have to be bold enough to make those invitations, and I ask each one of you to commit to doing the same. You and I, like my dad, we know where we're going when we die. Many people do not. You and I have a loving Father in heaven to whom we can bring our prayers, our worries, our fears, and find peace. But many people do not. You and I know that whatever happens, one day we will be reunited in the new heaven and the new earth, brothers and sisters in Christ, and raised up to eternal life. But many people do not. So as we approach this Christmas season, please would you be intentional about reaching out to those around you and inviting them to come and hear the Christmas story once more, to hear it afresh, because God's Holy Spirit is alive in us, acting in us and through us and in the world. And he can work that miracle of faith. The one he worked in Paul the Apostle on the Damascus Road, the one he worked in me 20 years ago, and the one he worked in you, he can work that miracle of faith in anyone. Amen.